do baseball i'm sean and i'm eds and uh we are a baseball history podcast every week bi-weekly bi-weekly what baseball is? history podcast I, uh, i've had some complaints why from some fans why that it's bi-weekly they want it weekly well we it's can't a lot do of that work we're in the middle of a pandemic here people yeah. <laughs> give us a break um we're doing we're, our best we're doing our best but uh every other week, uh, we take turns sharing a story from baseball history. Today, Edzy is telling me a story. I have no idea what he's about to about to say for the next half hour to forty minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't follow us on the social medias, uh, our Twitter is at Doing Baseball, and we've screwed it up many a times uh, in the last few episodes or so. What's going on? The cat is sneaking in. How the room. did he How open this the happen? door? The, just... the door legitimately just opened like somebody turned the handle. And hey. the cat's in here. All right. Okay, well, that's happening now. So, anyway, <laughs> our Instagram is officially at doing.baseball. We've screwed it up many a times in the last uh, episodes, but that's what it is. So, you can follow us there. We got lots of content on there, too. Well, Edzie is, is taking the helm, and, and there's some daily baseball history for you every day on the Instagram account. Uh, we should also plug, uh, our last guest, Max, uh, said he was re- releasing a food blog. Yes, and it's finally here. Maxmunch.com. Yes. Uh, two X's with Max. Yeah. Um. That first post, I, I'm gonna talk about the first post that's up there. That's really good writing. It makes me very hungry, and it, uh... It, it makes me want to explore more passion to get in the kitchen myself. Yeah. So. No doubt. Yeah. There, I, I have some inside information that a, a future post he's working on actually goes into the, the reasoning why there is these long rambles before recipes. Okay. He, he, he discovered why that is, and it's a lot of, like, legal bullshit, so... Stay tuned, people, because okay, that's, that's going to be a wicked post as well. That sounds interesting. Uh, and and uh, you have you have uh, something to plug right now, something that I'm very proud of you that you've accomplished this because you've been you you've been working on this project for a while. Why don't you tell them about your book? Uh, sweet, yeah. So I I do photography. I, I've worked as a professional photojournalist and event photographer and editorial photographer. But I uh, I did a book on the Toronto DIY punk scene from about 2008 to 2013, and uh, it's doing really well so far. I've self published it and putting it out there, and I've gotten a lot of good response. So you can always go to seandecory.com or sean underscore decory on instagram and uh check that out because uh yeah i i don't know whether you were there or not whether you're into the music or not i i have uh i hope you like the book yeah i was gonna say even if you're not a fan of the music per se uh you do a really good job of capturing the humanity of that scene so uh good job man well i would say thanks to all the people that help with it there's a lot of people that help with it and uh yeah check it out uh, should we get going? Yeah, let's do some baseball. All right, we're doing uh, baseball. May 26, 1959. That's yesterday. Oh, 
I was like, no, that was like 60 years ago. Well, May 26th is yesterday, technically. Yes. A day that likely rings no bells for your average person lives in infamy in the hearts of Pittsburgh Pirates fans. Harvey Haddix was readying himself to take the mound in Milwaukee. The Pirates hurler skillfully prepared as one does when facing the likes of Hammer and Hank Aaron, Eddie Matthews, and the rest of the Braves. Quick facts on the stats. Hank Aaron, at that point in the season, two months into the season, was slashing 442, 475, 798 with a 1272 OPS for the campaign. Jesus. Yeah, that's better than your road to the show guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the Pirates were riding a five-game winning streak, and Mr. Haddix didn't want to have it come to a halt on his watch. A veteran on the Pittsburgh squad, he was in the midst of his ninth full season as a major leaguer and his 13th as a pro. Haddix was born September 18, 1925, third son of Harvey Haddix Sr. and Nellie May Grider Haddix. He grew up on his parents' farm about 20 miles from Medway, Ohio. On the farm, life was typical for the Haddix boys. Harvey had two older brothers, Ed and Ben, and a younger brother, Fred. Haddix said, quote, There on the farm, we didn't have any money, and there were no kids out there to play ball with, except the neighbor kids, so we played two on a side. Two-on-two baseball. Yeah, so they obviously didn't like the neighbor kids because there was four Haddix brothers. They said they played two-on-two. There's no one to play with. It was just the neighbors, and they were assholes, so so. we wouldn't play. In 1940, before his freshman year in high school, the family purchased a farm near South Vienna, Ohio. Catawba High School had a successful baseball team loaded with upperclassmen, including brother Ben. Harvey became the team's left-handed shortstop. Quote, I could catch a brown, ground ball, he said. <laughs> so first of, all, first of all, left-handed, he's left-handed, he's playing shortstop. Yeah. Which is already funny. Yeah. But his greatest achievement at this point is... He could field a ground ball. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, because of the family poverty, equipment was often an issue for young Harvey and his brothers. He once told a WSU panel discussion, quote, I made the ball team, but I didn't have a pair of spikes. So I took a pair of my dress shoes and punched holes in the bottom of my dress shoes and riveted cleats on the bottom of my dress shoes for my first pair of spikes. Sick. DIY, bud. Yep. (laughs) Harvey began to pitch in his senior year of high school and excelled. Quote, when I became a senior, the pitcher had graduated, so I took over the pitching chores and we won the county championship. I love that the pit, like, well, the pitcher's gone. What are we going to do? Harvey. (laughs) They just have one. It's like some country bumpkin town with like 20 kids in the high school. Pretty much. (laughs) We got one pitcher. Yep. Somehow we got three catchers still. (laughs) His success was no surprise as he had excellent tutelage at home from both his father, an excellent uh, amateur pitcher in his own right, and from his older brother Ben, who had graduated and was now pitching for the local Springfield Cardinals, a Class C Mid-Atlantic League Cub. In 1943, after Haddix graduated from high school, quote, I was pitching semi-pro and a scout was there from the Philadelphia Athletics. He comes to me and says, I'm going to write Connie Mack about you. I said, that would be fine. I sat around waiting for two weeks and didn't hear anything. One day I picked up the newspaper and there was a little article in the paper that said that there is a Redbird tryout in Columbus. Haddix explains the scene at the tryout. I had to go to Columbus at nine in the morning until four in the afternoon for the camp. They had 350 kids there. They looked at me and said, you will be a pitcher. 
Pitchers went down to the bullpen, and we sat there until four. They said, okay, warm up and go in and throw nothing but fastballs. They said, can you come back tomorrow? So, so I guess they liked his fastballs. I guess, I guess, yeah. yeah. So he didn't specifically go there, I guess, to just be a pitcher. He was just like, I'm just going to go. And they were like, yeah. you're a pitcher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I came back the next day. Now throw what the catcher calls. I probably threw three to four curveballs and three to four fastballs. As I walked off the mound, he says, do you want to sign? I said, no. I'm an old country boy. I'm thinking about the guy back home that saw me first. What? So he's giving the chance to the Connie Mack guy if he wants to come okay. back. Okay, and... all right. So I guess he gave this guy his word, so he's like waiting on it. Yeah. But it's been a few weeks. Yeah. But Harvey never heard anything more from the scout and the Philadelphia Athletics, so he went back over to Columbus and signed with the Cardinals. He started a two-week road trip with the club, but soon had to leave Louisville and return to Columbus to register for the draft as World War II was in full swing and Haddix had turned 18 years old. Oh, so he was like... He was young. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess he was right out of high school. He's doing this. Yeah. Haddix would wait three years before taking another road trip. The Mid-Atlantic League halted play for the rest of World War II, and Harvey received a three-year deferment from the Army as a farmer, which meant the only employment he could take was on the farm. So he just went and worked on the farm because the, there's just no league. Yeah. All right. Makes sense. After the war ended, Harvey returned to baseball and in 1947 began his professional career in AAA. Haddix went to Columbus for spring training. For whatever reason, Haddix felt he wouldn't play with them and after two weeks was fed up. Quote, I sat there about two weeks and I finally had enough and went up to the office and said, where am I going to play ball? He said, you're going to Pocatello, Idaho. I looked at him and said, no, I'm not. That is too far from home. You got something closer to home than that? <laughs> so, Pocatello, Idaho? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's uh, Idaho. Yeah. Did I say Idaho? Iowa. Iowa? You said Iowa. Idaho. Iowa? It's Iowa. Idaho. I know. It's I- Let's I get just... off this. <laughs> <laughs> Haddix was sent to Winston-Salem of the Class C Carolina League a couple days later and met the team in Lynchburg, Virginia. Quote, I got there and was sitting on the steps waiting for someone to come, and here comes a little old school bus with the Winston-Salem Cardinals on the side of it. There was one guy on the team that knew me who introduced me to the manager, Zip Payne. Zip Payne? Zip Payne. Okay, and I just want to be clear because we got lost on that Idaho thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where is he now? Did he go to Idaho or did he just get... No, he said, I'm not going Yeah, he's there. not going to Idaho. Yeah, that's too far from home. So where so they, they send him? So they, instead of sending him... They sent him to a lower level oh. instead. So they sent so him... So he kind of shot himself in the foot. But... Yeah, he doesn't care. But what, what, what's the skip pain? Zip pain. Zip pain. I love Zip it. Pain. All right. Haddix was five foot six, 175 pounds, and Payne's first impression of him was not positive. Yeah. Haddix said he was told the manager said, quote, do they expect me to win a pennant sending me something like that down here? <laughs> Haddix's first two appearances were in relief. He did not allow a run in a win and a loss. From then on, he was a starter and changed the manager's opinion by winning 19 and losing 5 with 275 strikeouts while also hitting over 300. Uh, he pitched a 7-inning no-hitter on August 11th, later that year a 9-inning one-hitter, and also pitched a game in which he accomplished 19 strikeouts. Wow. Harvey was an all-star, lefty pitcher of the year, rookie of the year, and MVP. Holy shit. So that manager was wrong. Yeah, well, he's a little guy, right? He's like a 
Yeah, he's yeah. not he's not very big, so first impressions, right? Mm-hmm. The next year, Harvey jumped up to AAA again, but despite his success, remained there for another three years, blocked by a stellar pitching staff in St. Louis. Quote, Now I thought I was good enough to go to spring training, but the Cardinals didn't want to see me. They had five good left-handed pitchers, and that was Harry Breachin, Max Lanier, Howie Pollitt, Al Brazel, and Ken Johnson. Uh, as Haddix matured, he had grown a little and was generously listed at five foot nine. In 1948 at Columbus, he had 11 wins and a 337 batting average. For a second straight year, he was an all-star. The 49 season was more of the same. Haddix won 13 games for the Redbirds and was again selected an all-star. In 1950, he had 18 wins and another all-star selection as he added a change-up to his repertoire of pitches, which already included a fastball and a slider. On August 16th for Columbus, he retired 28 Milwaukee batters in a row during an 11-inning game. Oh, I was going to say, perfect game. Yeah. <laughs> no? No. Uh... On September 9th, the playoff-bound Redbirds and Har- had Harvey Haddock's day. It was also announced that his contract had been sold to the Cardinals, but a trip to St. Louis would have to wait as he was drafted into the Army and sent to Fort Dix, New Jersey. So I guess this is like Korea. Yeah. He, well. I was going to ask you, like, this that is would, after World War II. That so would probably be Korea. Okay. Yeah, but, uh, so it's like 1951 or 52, right? Uh, I think, no, this is a 48. No, no yeah, you, 50, Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, 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 okay, but, that makes sense. Then, I yeah. believe, yeah. So so that makes sense, but it's just yeah, timing-wise. So he was blocked by all these lefties it, it, with the Cardinals, mm-hmm. and then his contract gets selected, and then... And then he's, he's got to go to... Gosh, yeah. yeah. Well, he's in New Jersey, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, he served as the camp's athletic director in 51 and 52 and pitched on the baseball team, leading the squad to a state semi-pro title in 1952. That August, with his Army service complete, Harvey joined the Cardinals and made his major league debut on the 20th in St. Louis against the Boston Braves, winning a complete game five-hitter 9-2. to wow. He finished the season with three complete games, a 2-2 two and two record, and had a 2.79 ERA. All right, that's good. Yeah. First time. Yeah. Haddix entered the 53 season as the Cardinals' top prospect and had a great spring. He even won a box of cigars for winning the three pitchers batting awards. What the? <laughs> what's the three pitchers batting award? Collecting the most hits, scoring the most runs, and stealing the most bases. And that's just like for? Spring training, I assume. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. Well, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little incentive to, oh, well, to try hard in the spring. Good, good old box of cigars. Yeah, yeah, that'll fix you. That'll fix you yeah. good. That'll do you good. Harvey opened his rookie season in the starting rotation and shut out the Cubs on four hits in the home opener. He led the team in wins with 10 and strikeouts with 79 by June 27th and earned a spot on the All-Star team, although he did not pitch in the game. Harvey pitched five consecutive complete games after the break, the last of which was a two-hit shutout against Philadelphia, in which both hits came in the ninth inning. The first hit by Richie Ashburn was controversial as Ashburn reached on a bunt. Ah. Yeah. That's a, that's a slimy move. Haddix quelled any controversy saying he was only trying to win. That's all. I mean, yeah, of course. Like, it's, it's one of those things where it's, like, defendable. Uh... But it just depends which like side of it you're on. Yeah. Like I would if, if somebody did that to my team, I'd be like, fuck you. But like if, <laughs> if my guy did that, I'd be like, yeah, good work, bud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Harvey didn't see any harm in it anyway. Haddock's finished with 20 wins, 19 complete games, 
six shutouts, which led the league, and a 306 ERA while batting 289. So he's a good hitter, too. Yeah, no, I'm surprised. Uh, he, he was second to the Dodgers' Jim Gilliam for Rookie of the Year. Gilliam told the Sporting News, quote, he was surprised to have won. I was going to say, sounded, the sounds of that season were uh, like MVP-worthy, yeah. let alone Rookie of the Year. Yeah. Haddock's, again, ranked among the elite NL pitchers in 54. Again selected a National League All-Star. He had to be replaced on the team after being struck below the right kneecap by a line drive off the bat of someone who would play a significant role in his future. Milwaukee first baseman Joe Adcock. Haddock said the injury bothered him the rest of his life and affected his pitching. Quote, I was never the same after that. I didn't have the same spring off the mound. Interesting. Harvey was right, and had his first sub-500 season in 1955. The team began 9-12 and to start in a rainy spring. Haddix and Brooks Lawrence made 15 appearances as starters or relievers in the first 21 games, winning only two. Haddix's ERA was 591. Ouch. Yeah. The Cardinals' slow start got manager Stanky fired <laughs> and replaced by Harry Walker. Haddix's record stood at 2-8, and eight, so he spent hours throwing pitches against the outfield wall trying to harness his curveball. That is not good for you. No. <laughs> just, ah. I'm going to throw a curveball for hours at a time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he ended a disappointing season with a 12-16 and 16 record and a 4.46 ERA. Still good enough for a new general manager, Frank Lane, to call him a cards untouchable. Well, that, I mean... The second half, at least, like he had a shitty start. If you go two and eight to start, but then end up what, like, what was it, like, twelve, 12 and sixty? Yeah. So you yeah. basically went like eight and eight for the rest of the year, and he lowered his ERA, so mm-hmm. he showed something. Yeah. I guess all those curveballs against the barn or whatever, <laughs> they, they paid off. Yeah. Uh, but on May eleventh, nineteen fifty-six, the Untouchable was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies with pitchers Stu Miller and Ben Flowers for pitchers Herm Weihammer and Murray Dixon. Quote, I didn't want to go to the Phillies, Haddock said in 1989, but good things come out of bad things. I had a house free of rent there, and with the money I saved two years in Philadelphia, I bought my first farm. Yeah. There was something positive there. I guess the Phillies just had an apartment. That yeah. Here you go, just have it. Just something maybe the St. Louis team didn't do at the time. Yeah. Over the next three seasons in Philadelphia, Haddix was up and down. In the first season as a Philly, he regained some form after pitching coach Whit Wyatt noticed some mechanical flaws. He had a 12-8 record and could have been 16-4 if the Phillies' bullpen had not blown four leads. Yeah. Phil's manager, Mayo Smith, listed the acquisition of Haddix as the year's most pleasant surprise in a 1957 comment to the Sporting News. Haddix was inconsistent in 1957. At times, he was the staff ace, but later he was sent to the bullpen. In July, he pitched an 11-inning shutout against the Cubs, but in his next game, he was knocked out by the Braves in the third inning. Well, you let him pitch 11 innings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you take the good with the bad. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he ended the season with a 10-13 and record and a 4.06 ERA, and he suffered with a stiff arm for the first time in his career. In the offseason, the Phillies needing hitting traded Haddix to Cincinnati for slugger Wally Post. Quote, I figured at the end of the season that I would be traded, Haddix said. I thought I would go to one of any of four clubs, but going to the Reds is the best that could have happened. The Reds have always been my team, even when I was a kid. Yeah, he's from Ohio. Yeah, so he's happy. 
Uh, he went to a no wind-up delivery to try to stop the recurring problem of tipping his pitches. I cut down the wind-up so I could hide the ball from the third base coach, he said. For the season, he was 8-7 and seven with a 3.52 ERA and gave up 191 hits in 184 innings, including 28 home runs. Then in January 59, he was traded with catcher Smokey Burgess and third baseman Don Hoke to the Pirates for Frank Thomas, Whammy Douglas, Jim Pendleton, and Johnny Powers. Wow. First of all, Johnny Powers. Yeah. Second of all, and Frank Whammy Thomas. And Whammy Douglas. And Whammy Douglas. And Smokey Burgess. Yeah, I mean, and there's a Pendleton is, in there. This might be the greatest trade of all time as far as name phonetics. Yes. Obviously, it's not like Frank Thomas, Frank Thomas. But, no, but Frank Thomas. But Frank Thomas. Yeah, maybe it's him. It's probably not. Can, it's not. It's not. It's definitely not. Yeah. The Pirates were poised to contend, but Haddock's got off to a hard luck start with poor run support. On May 26th, his record was 4-2 with 2-6-7 ERA. He felt ill that day and later claimed that if it wasn't his day to pitch, he likely would not even have gone to the ballpark. Well, he's gutting it out, trying to. Quote, I had the flu. I felt terrible. We took a morning flight over from Pittsburgh the day of the game, and we didn't have a lot of rest. I took throat lozenges the whole game to keep from coughing. In their pregame scout meeting, Harvey spoke up, quote, Going over the hitters, I figured I would have some fun. So I got into the high and tight and low and away stuff. Don Hoke broke up the meeting with, quote, If you do that, you'll throw a no-hitter. <laughs> the Pirates lineup did not include injured right fielder Roberto Clemente, who was replaced by Roman Mejias. Manager Danny Murtaugh had Dick Schofield at short rather than Dick Grote. And Rocky Nelson at first rather than Dick Stewart or Ted Klusinski. How many dicks were dicks on, this on this team? There's so many dicks. So many dicks on the Pirates. <laughs> <laughs> the weather at the game time was 77 degrees. It was cloudy with a stiff wind blowing in from right field. And thunderstorms were forecast. In the grandstand was 24-year-old Alan Bud Selig. Quote, I was a great Braves fan in those days, said the former baseball commissioner. The Braves lineup was very formidable. The Braves were a wonderful team and had just won the pennant in 57-58 and would tie in 59. They really could hit. They began the game that day with a 290 team batting average. In the first inning, Schofield popped out to Eddie Matthews. Bill Verdon hit a ball that catcher Del Crandall fielded for the second out, and Burgess popped out to left. The Braves followed suit in their first. Johnny O'Brien had a first pitch ground out to short. Matthews worked a 3-2 count before lining out to Nelson at first, and Hank Aaron flied out to center after a five-pitch at bat. Nelson led off the second with a line drive single to center. Bob Skinner hit a roller to first baseman Joe Adcock, who turned a 3-6-3 double play with Johnny Logan. Bill Mazeroski struck out to end the inning. So they're going up, three up, three down. Well, not back three and up, forth. three up, back and forth. In the bottom of the second, it took just 10 pitches for Haddocks to retire the Braves. Adcock struck out, and West Covington and Crandall had ground outs to second and third. In the third... Hoke led off with a single, throwing the bat at the ball and hitting a comebacker straight at Burdett. That's the pitcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who dodged the bat and missed the ball. Mejias, <laughs> what's that? I was just oh, laughing at that. I was just imagining the, the, the dodging the bat and ball. Yeah. I'm very deprived of baseball. Yeah. Right <laughs> Mejias forced Hoke at second on a grounder to Matthews at third. 
Hoke was then out on a fielder's choice at second as Matthews fielded a Mejias grounder to third. That brought Haddix to the plate in what was the first of two key failed offensive opportunities. Haddix hit another shot off Burdett's leg and hustled down the line. He beat the throw to first, but Mejias made an ill-advised attempt to advance from first to third and was thrown Ah. out. So Haddix hits the ball, hits the pitcher. The runner thinks he can go first to third because there's all this confusion and stuff going on once the ball hits the guy. Gets called out at third. Yeah, so Haddock's safe at first, yes. but but it could have been first and second. Now it's just yeah. runner up first. Yeah. yeah. Schofield then singled to right, a hit that could have easily scored yeah. Mejia's from second. Damn it. Verdon then flied out to left field to end the inning. In the bottom half, Harvey threw just seven pitches, retiring Andy Pafko on a fly ball to Mejia's. Logan lined sharply to Schofield, and Burdett struck out. Burgess flew out to center to kick off the Pirates' fourth. Nelson grounded out to second. Skinner singled to center, and Mazeroski flied out to deep center. In the Braves' half, Haddock's made quick work of O'Brien, Matthews, and Aaron with a strikeout and two flies to center. Marsha Haddock's was at home on her Clark County, Ohio farm when her mother-in-law called to tell her to turn on the radio. Her husband was having the game of his life. The reception of Pittsburgh's KDKA was poor, so she got in her car and drove a few miles to the park on the hill where she could pick up the broadcast. I was going to say, why the hell are you listening to your husband's baseball game? (laughs) But that makes more sense now. (laughs) Uh, In the fifth and sixth innings, Haddix just needed 11 pitches to complete his second perfect trip through the Milwaukee order. Schofield said, quote, standing it short, I would turn around and look at the scoreboard and it seemed like they were all hitting with two strikes. The engineers at KDKA decided, decided to start recording the game on a vinyl album in the sixth inning, which was not something they typically did. So everyone feels that there's like something happening here, because there obviously is. Yeah. The seventh through the ninth were more of the same. Haddix continued to set the Braves down in order, and Burdett kept scattering hits, a dozen for the night, but kept getting timely double plays with solid defense behind him. Burdett was accused of throwing a spitball. Logan said, quote, I can't verify that. But I will say he knew how to throw one. Throw one. It's <laughs> like what? I called how it. Is that an exact quote? Well, he know how to throw one. Yeah. I called it a sinker. I got a feeling he was throwing one because we got a lot of double plays. Pirates shorttops shortstop Schofield said of Burdett, "Quote: He would load them up pretty good sometimes. The ball got a little wetter when men got on base." Hmm. In the top of the seventh, the Pirates had their second near miss. Quote, I hit a ball to right field and I thought it was gone, but a windstorm had started. Aaron went back on it and it kind of gave up on it. When the wind blew it back, he caught it against the fence. I thought it was gone, oh. Bob Skinner said of his near jack. Uh. The, bench mood, uh, the mood on the bench was described by Bucks pitcher Bob Friend. Quote, we were all squirming around in the dugout. Murtaugh kept asking Harvey, can you go another? Harvey said, I'm okay. Pirates closer Elroy Face, who typically would head to the bullpen in the sixth inning, said, I never went to the bullpen. I stayed in the dugout so I could watch. After the eighth inning, Pirates radio broadcaster Bob Prince shouted, Don't go away. We are on the verge of baseball history. Mm -hmm. The ninth (laughs) inning was over. Prince screamed, Harvey Haddix has pitched a perfect no-hit, no-run game. The pattern continued through the top of the 13th. Jesus. 
As the Braves went out in order and the Pirates failed to score, in the 10th, Milwaukee substituted Del Rice for second baseman O'Brien at bat, and Felix Mantilla eventually went in at second. Okay, but third... Okay, keep so going. I need to know how this ends. <laughs> yeah. Harvey Haddix went to the mound for the 13th time. Through 12 innings, he had been as economically sound as a pitcher could be, throwing an astoundingly low pitch count of 104. That's fucked. That's, that's wait, so 13 so by 104, so that's like eight yeah. pitches an inning. Yeah. Well, Mantilla led off for the Braves, hitting the ball to Hoke at third. About a five-hopper, Haddock said. Don picked up the ball, looked at it in his glove, and threw it in the dirt. No. Rocky Nelson couldn't come with, up with it. Matthews bunted Mantilla to second base. I walked Aaron intentionally to set up the double play. This was Harvey's first three-ball count since Matthews was 3-2 and two in the first inning. Wow. A lifetime ago. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Adcock was next. Remember Joe Adcock? Yeah, he's, he's one of the dicks. He's the guy. <laughs> yeah. He's the one who earlier mentioned would play a big role here. Yeah. Harvey hung a slider on the second pitch of the at-bat, and Adcock hit it out to right center. Damn it. Mantilla scored. Aaron, assuming the game was over, stopped and cut across the infield. Adcock passed him. Aaron eventually went to third and scored in front of Adcock, but was ruled out. What? Like, I mean, I get it, but so so there's runners on first and second. He yes. hits a bomb. Yes. What the fuck is Hank Aaron thinking? I don't know. Like, I mean, but they're are they're not at home, are they? No, they're in Pittsburgh. Yeah. So. There's still another half inning to go. That's a bro. All right, that, that, that's a wild play. You would never think Hank. Aaron. <laughs> yeah, Aaron eventually went to third and scored in front of him. Was ruled out. Yeah. Adcock was credited with a double instead of a homer. Murtaugh argued that Aaron was called out before Mantilla, who went back to tag up. There's already two outs, so like. This is so that's strange. Saying. He's saying that Aaron should be out before Mantilla crossed the thing because Adcock passed him before Mantilla touched, touched home, home plate. Yeah. Holy shit. All right. Yeah. So, um, Murtaugh argued that Aaron was called out before Mantilla, who went back to tag up and crossed the plate. Umpires huddled and ruled Mantilla safe and allowed all three runs. What? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, National League President Warren Giles overturned that decision the next day. The final score, Braves won, Pirates nothing. Oh, fuck. I mean, I kind of, I wasn't sure... I'm like, I don't think I've ever heard... I, I, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I would have heard of like a 13-inning perfect game. Quote, when I crossed the plate, I looked up and saw Hank walking across the pitcher's mound, Mantilla said. Jesus. When asked if he crossed the plate in time, he said, it was close. We were lucky to win that game. Well, I mean, our, like that's just like the dumbest base running error <laughs> yes. I think I've ever heard of. Yes. <laughs> I mean... Your brain is probably mush at this no, point. No, I get it. You've been like, playing a game for, I mean, it was, yeah, you've been playing for three and a half, four hours at that point, but still, like, all right. <laughs> After the game, Haddix was despondent and surprised to hear he had done something. Twelve perfect innings, a major league record. That did little to console him. To Harvey, it was, quote, just another loss, and that's no good. Burdett called the visitor's clubhouse and congratulated Haddix. The next day... Asked for a raise since he was the winning pitcher in the greatest game ever pitched. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm guessing that might have been a joke. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's probably tongue-in-cheek. Haddix became an instant celebrity. He was featured in Life and Sports Illustrated articles. He turned down an invitation to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show. At a ceremony in Pittsburgh, President Giles presented him with an inscribed silver tea service with 13 silver cups. Haddock's 12 and two-thirds inning, one-hit complete game against the team that had just represented the NL in the previous two World Series and considered by many to be the best pitching performance in MLB history. Mazeroski later said of Haddock's dominance in the game, quote, Usually you have one or two great or spectacular defensive plays in these no-hitters. Not that night. It was the easiest game I ever played in. Sounded like it. It sounds like it, yeah. Haddix received many letters of congratulations and support, one in particular from a Texas A&M fraternity, which read in its entirety, quote, Dear Harvey, tough shit. (laughs) (laughs) It made me mad, recounted Haddix, until I realized they were right. That's exactly what it was. Tough shit. Yeah, yeah. He's got a good attitude about it. Well, I mean, yeah, that just must... Like to go beyond a perfect game and 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 still not have any, and then just like the base running error early on, and then to have a controversial play, like, but it doesn't matter. You still lose one nothing, whether you lost three nothing or one nothing, like really. But I mean, I don't think the run should not have counted. Like it was a home run. Like yeah, I don't know. I would. Uh, In 1991, the MLB changed the definition of a no hitter to. A game in which a pitcher or pitchers complete a game of nine innings or more without allowing a hit. The rules formalization made Adcock's drive fatal to Haddix's no-hit bid. Despite his having thrown more perfect innings than anyone in a single game, Haddix's game was taken off the list of perfect games. Haddix's response was, it's okay, I know what I did. Well, I mean, that's kind of a dick move to, to like, just add it on there at first. Yeah. At first, they were like, oh, okay, it was a perfect game, like, just because it it happened in the third. And then they were like, no, never mind. No, it has to be a whole game. It doesn't matter how long the game is. (laughs) Without rules, the world is anarchy. Yeah. Yeah. In May 1989, Milwaukee's Bob Buell revealed that the Braves pitchers had been stealing signs from the Pittsburgh catcher Smokey Burgess. Because he was showing a high crouch, apparently. Yeah. Uh, from their bullpen, Braves pitchers moved a towel to signal for a fastball or a breaking ball, the only two pitches Haddix used in the game. The usually solid Milwaukee offense managed just one hit despite this assistance. All but one Milwaukee hitter, Aaron, took the signals. I don't know if I believe that. Yeah, well... <laughs> they were probably still... Wondering. Do you think he was like, don't put the towel up when... No, I mean, I have no, no idea, but the fact that it just didn't help them is even more amazing. Right. Uh, Harvey pitched another six seasons in MLB, finishing up his playing days with two seasons in Baltimore as an Oriole. Quote, I wouldn't mind trying again next spring, or I'd love to catch on with a team looking for a pitching coach, he said. His last big league appearance was on August 28, 1965. In November of 65, Haddix was hired as the pitching coach of the Vancouver Mounties, the Oakland Athletics AAA team. But on December 29th, he resigned and signed as a pitcher coach of the Mets. He'd be the first big league pitching coach for Tug McGraw, Nolan Ryan, Tom Seaver, and Jerry Kuzman. Wow. Yeah. In 2009, Ryan said, quote, Harvey could not have been, from my perspective, more of the right person at the right time for me. Which is, like, amazing because I believe, if I know my history right, 
uh, Nolan Ryan wasn't like very like he wasn't as special as he became in yeah, the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? He yeah, he became better throughout his career and had a long career. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after two ninth place finishers Manager Wes Westrom was fired by the Mets near the end of the 67 season, and new manager Gil Hodgers replaced the entire coaching staff. Haddock's returned to the Pirates organization in 68 and coached for two of their minor league affiliates. In 69, he became the Reds pitching coach. When Reds manager Dave Bristol was fired at the end of the season, it meant back to the minors with Pittsburgh for Haddock's. The Boston Red Sox hired him as a pitching coach in 71. But at the season's end, his wife, Marsha, persuaded him to retire. When Frank Robinson asked Haddix to join him for his historic managerial tenure in Cleveland, Haddix unretired again. From 1975 to 1978, he was the Indians' pitching coach. In 1979, Haddix joined Chuck Tanner and the Pirates for the next six seasons, getting his second World Series ring that year. Nice. A heavy chain smoker who describes cigarettes as his best friend. Ever since he won that damn cigar box. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That was, uh, that was uh, the beginning of the end. Yeah. Very early yeah, yeah. Haddock's developed, developed emphysema. This hastened the end of his baseball career and eventually his life. Even though his 1984 Pirates pitchers led the league in ERA, he was fired because thrifty general manager Sid Thrift... <laughs> wanted coaches who could also throw batting practice so yeah. hey the old man with that bazima can yeah. you throw batting practice yeah. i know you oh, threw 13 no. innings <laughs> sorry you had multiple more than one nine innings pitched with no hits in your career and uh you can't throw <laughs> you can't throw batting practice throw so guess the... what you're not coaching you're not, you're not any use to me anymore yeah. <laughs> Haddock's no longer was able. His health continued to deteriorate, but he never stopped smoking. He died on January 8th, 1994 in Springfield, Ohio. Quote, I loved cigarettes. They finally got to me. He said a year or so before his death. <laughs> it's, oh, it's so sad. It's still, I love him. <laughs> uh, so don't smoke, kids. Don't smoke. That's the story of Harvey Haddock's and his near-perfect game that isn't in the record books anymore, but was in the record books. Uh, that was that was that was great. I knew I knew something terrible was going to happen. Like, well, it usually does. <laughs> yeah, normally, normally, Why would anything good ever happen? <laughs> <laughs> we've had we've had a couple happy stories on here. We? We, uh, we, the bananas was a great story of, of, of positivity. That's true. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to find some happier stories. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, but until next time, uh, give us a, a follow or a review uh, wherever you're listening to this, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Podbean. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Check it out if you want some daily baseball history. And uh, I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And we were doing some baseball. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Okay, bye. <laughs>